Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm <clears throat> Bethany Northeast lead pastor, and we are continuing um, a series in the book of Philippians this morning. We're down to chapter four, so this week and then next week, and then we'll begin a series in Lent in the 23rd Psalm. So that's going to be really interesting to go verse by verse throughout Lent in the 23rd Psalm. I'm really looking forward to that. But I've been enjoying this series a lot because I think it's like every week you come to a new section of Philippians and there's like one of those really well-known verses and um, that you have kind of memorized from childhood. And so it's fun to come to that. And then I hope what we'll do this morning is put a little bit of a fresh, uh, give, you give you a fresh look at it. So let me pause and, and as we do that, um, we'll pray for God to um, open up the word to us personally and also collectively. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, this chance now we have to gather as a community um, to dwell in your word, to just pause um, in our week um, to practice the discipline of learning and of meditating and of um, allowing your word to speak into our, our lives. We ask that personally, God, many of us have come from weeks where there's been a lot of noise and where there's been some disappointment and even some, um, some heartbreak. And others of us, God, have come from a season where we're really excited about what's happening in our lives, but we, we still understand in the midst of that continuum, God, we need you to speak into our hearts. So we ask you to do that. We ask you to speak also to our community, God, as you continue to shape us to be a people on mission, to be a family on mission, would you help us understand, even through this passage in Philippians, how that looks, to be Bethany Northeast, called as your beloved people into this part of the city where you've called us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll begin this morning with a little bit of an art history lesson. Um, I'm going to ask you a question and then go ahead and shout out loudly the answer, okay? Um, if, I were, if I were to ask you to name the most famous work of art in history, yeah, of course. Go ahead and throw it up like I knew this. Uh, did anybody say anything else because you didn't give a lot of time because somebody said Mona Lisa and somebody would say David? Oh, that guy. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Mona Lisa. I didn't bring the statue of David because that would be inappropriate for church, right? Isn't he naked? I think so, yes. We need to talk. No, I'm kidding. Um, so the reason behind the question, like we've all heard it one time or another in our lives, this famous Aristotelian saying that art imitates life, right? Art imitates life. And there has been some debate whether that's true or it's just the opposite. I read that Oscar Wilde actually challenged Aristotle at one point and said that it's actually life imitating art. Um, <clears throat> but regardless of which way it goes, it's true that great art is kind of like a window and leave that Mona Lisa back up there because it's important for now. Like a window into not only the time in which it was created, but also into the human soul, okay? So if, if the Mona Lisa, if there ever were like an icon or an emblem of an era in which the painting itself was painted, it's this painting. Um, if you know much about Mona Lisa, she was painted by Leonardo da Vinci during the Enlightenment or the Renaissance. And if you know much about the Enlightenment, uh, you'll begin to see how this painting captures the mood of that time. It's tranquility. This is, these are some of the key kind of overarching themes of the, the Enlightenment. Contentment, serenity, like her expression just typifies 
that era. Its values, its virtues, it's, these are the things. Actually, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly that I get each month, and it was back in November, and they had the science of the Mona Lisa. So I, it, but I learned that he took 16 years, the last 16 years of his life, to paint this painting. And part of what he did was why he took so long is he wanted to create kind of a a, a virtual reality experience, kind of a like a pre-modern virtual reality experience where you feel like you're inside the painting. Have you guys ever been to the Louvre and felt like her eyes were following you? That's intentional because I think he's trying to invite you into the scene, into the era, which is this era of the Enlightenment. Now, if you move forward in time, um, 19th and 20th century, late 19th, 20th century, the whole cultural mood in Europe and North America shifted. And do not put the next painting up, because I'm going to ask the question, okay? Hold off. You can kill that one, though. Don't kill the Mona Lisa, I'm sorry. So in Europe and North America, there's rumblings of war, as you know, or if you know the history of Europe. So Europe's on fire. There are these great technological shifts, you know, the, the, the industrial revolution's happening, but they're not bringing on the big changes that the philosophers of the Enlightenment had promised, you know? And so the environment's being left in ruin, in decay. People are being worked to death in these sweatshops. And suddenly the, the existentialist philosophers, philosophers of that day, who are like Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, they're not waxing eloquent about progress. They're, they're preaching a, um, a gospel of cynicism and despair. So remember what I said. Art imitates life. If there was a painting that depicted the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Era, the modern era, what, what painting would that be? The Scream. Go ahead and put it up. Art imitates life. Uh, you know, as societies begin to crumble, this mood in artwork starts to change if you start looking at the artwork of the Industrial Era. And so the Scream by Edward Munch, he took about the same amount of time to paint this painting as, as um, Leonardo took to paint his. And again, he is uh, symbolizing... This, the values and the virtues of that area, era, which are chaos, uncertainty, um, war that's enveloping communities and, and entire people groups. There's genocide happening. Um, it, and really, this prevailing feeling of anxiety. I mean, if you look at the scream, it kind of makes you feel a little anxious, doesn't it? To be sure, I think the most dominant characteristic of the modern era in which we are, we've inherited were the we, we live in, as inheritors of that uh, era as anxiety. According to the New York Times, um, they published an article back in last October. Anxiety is now the most common mental health issue in the United States. It is affecting nearly one-third of adults and adolescents. And then there's this middle-aged group of kind of those pre-adult, still kind of adolescent, called college. And so there's this UCLA study that just came out like this week, this last week, they studied 200,000 American college and university students who reported, listen to this, they're experiencing anxiety at catastrophic levels. 80% of these 200,000 report frequently or sometimes experiencing anxiety on a daily level. 34% feel depressed at some point in the last three months. 13% have been diagnosed with some sort of mental health condition. 9% of these 200,000, which is, I think, 18,000 university students considered suicide in the last year. And if you're considering suicide and you're in college, there's something off, right? Something's wrong in your society. And by the way, just because you're sitting here this morning doesn't make you immune. Uh, A major problem with the evangelical church, the evangelical expressions of faith, 
is the failure, our failure to address anxiety. We have the verse from Philippians 4, but we fail to address it. Listen to this quote from Salon.com just this week. I'm 30 years old. I'm struggling to find sanity. Between the Christian schools, homeschooling, the Christian group home, Christian camp, and going to different churches in different cities, I'm a psychological, emotional, and spiritual mess. End quote. Former evangelical. So the question is not if you're a Christ follower or not. I don't know where you're landing this morning. Some of you are Christ followers, some of you are not. It doesn't matter <laughs> where you land. It's not if you're going to experience anxiety. It's, it's how you're going to handle it when you face it. Because you're all going to face it at some point in your life. Whether you're in high school, whether you're just out of college, whether you're in your 40s as I am. Will you handle it? Here's some options. Will you handle it through avoidance? Just kind of working harder and harder and harder and harder to create this environment in which you're immune to all the problems and, 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 and the uncertainty around you. Just insulate your life. Will you handle it through cynicism, like choosing just not to care, develop an attitude of apathy? I just don't care anymore about the environment. I just don't care anymore. It's not my problem. Will you handle it through distraction, using substances or experiences or devices to like, deaden away the pain, to sort of... Uh, to numb yourself. And there's a lot of other ways you can handle it, but the problem with all these ways is that none of them work. Uh, the buzz wears off, always. <laughs> the vacation always ends, always. The luminescence of this magical device always wears out. It's called planned obsolescence. The football season's over, you've binge-watched Netflix, everything, so there's nothing left to do, right? Like, you're just sitting at home on the couch, like, what do I do now? And... Uh, and that's what we need to do. The reality for all of us, whether, we, whether we're here this morning, back at home later today, uh, workplace on Monday, or on the dinner table later this week, it's not avoidance of pain, temporary relief, or pleasure, all those things that I mentioned that we really most need and want desire. Uh, it's actually this thing called peace. We actually need peace, deep, which is my definition for you, deep abiding confidence or stability, um, like assurance that in the midst of great turmoil, if you've been in an airplane before, you know that what keeps that airplane from rocking are actually these stabilizers on the wings. In the midst of turbulence, we all are facing some sort of turbulence, anxiety, we need something to stabilize our lives. And that, the Bible describes it as peace. Um, and that, my friends, is what the Lord is offering us this morning in Philippians 4. The peace of God, as Paul says in Philippians 4, that surpasses all understanding, that is, will literally sit up as a guard, a hedge around our lives, to protect our minds and our hearts. I mean, not, nothing gets better than that. Your mind and your heart is under attack by the world and sin and the devil and the lies of the enemy, which is kind of anxiety. And the Lord says, I promise to guard you from that, your heart and your mind, through this thing called peace. So that's a promise to us. That being said, it's not like a vending machine you just go drop a quarter in and you get peace out of. Good luck with that. So what Paul does in this passage is he gives us three ways by which we can cultivate the peace of God. So it does take practice. I'm going to call them disciplines. And I put them in your outline, three disciplines. I've left you little blanks to fill in so you can kind of, I can hold your attention. But the idea is that um, these disciplines, we're going to look at them, they're, they're, they'll both help us deal and face with anxiety, but also cultivate peace, Okay. So deal with anxiety, cultivate peace, okay? So the first one, I'll just give it to you right at the front because it's a little weird. 
We're going to go through each of them. They kind of follow the, the chapter. I'm just looking at verses 4 to 9 in Philippians right now. So again, like I said last time I was up, the rest of it, another sermon. Actually, there'll be another sermon on Philippians 4 next week, so come back. The first discipline is the discipline of moderation. So write that down. Moderation. And some of you are like, <laughs> I don't see that word in the passage. Jack, where's that word? So look at verses 4 and 5 with me if you have Philippians open. And feel free to have it open on a device. That's totally cool. Um, I know most of us aren't carrying hardcover Bibles around, that's, and that's fine if you don't. So Philippians 4, 4 and 5, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So this is one of those few places, or actually there's a number, but there's, there's a few places that critically in the English Bible that you're probably carrying where the Greek word doesn't translate over into English exactly or very well. So it's the word gentleness. Some translations, depending on what you have, say forbearance, some say reasonableness. Most of ours probably say gentleness. Now, if you're carrying an old King James version, which I know all of you are, <laughs> it actually says moderation. Let your moderation be evident. So what does that mean, though? Because it's not a word I'm just kicking around all the time, like, hey, you're so moderate. <laughs> like, moderation. Like, just be, you know, we actually think of that in terms of things that we probably shouldn't be um, consuming. But what does moderation mean? Well, if you look it up, I had to do this because I wasn't really quite sure. It, this is the Oxford English definition of it, the avoidance of excess. So here's another definition I heard someone once say, the ra a radical evenness of temper. Moderation is a radical evenness of temper. Now, if you want a picture biblically of how that might look, to have a, a moderate temperament, I just would invite you, and don't, I'll just cover this real quick, but flip, uh, it's in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you flip back a few pages in your Bible, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's what he says. Really interesting but kind of bizarre passage. He says, We'll not be here forever. This is verses 29 and 30 for if you want to look at it later. We'll not be here forever. So let those with wives live as if they had none. They that weep as though they wept not. Those that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Those that buy as if they possess not. For the fashion of the world is passing away. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, I think, that through the grace of God, as, as one person once said, when we come to understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable, the best times leavable. Worst times bearable, best times leavable. In other words, if you'll begin to understand the discipline of moderation, which again is, is, is going to guard you from anxiety, help you understand peace and experience peace. Uh, when you, the worst times are bearable, the best times are leavable. Weep as though you've not wept. That's a worst time. That's like a, a picture of mourning. Bearable. You can do that. You rejoice as though you haven't rejoiced. Best time leavable. You think this is the best? What if it gets better? What if it gets worse? So it means this. If, in order to experience God's peace amidst chaos, anxiety, and turmoil, a, a Christ follower has to learn to say something like this. I'm anxious, but I can face it because whatever this is that's causing anxiety is not my root. It's not the center of my being. I've lost something. My house is losing value, market value. I've lost equity. I've lost whatever. And that's not true anymore, <laughs> all of us. But this isn't my main thing, so I can still trust God to provide, right? I'm afraid of what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, I got a bad review. Um, my neighbor and I, woo, we got an issue around kind of the ease, the, our, our fence line. Those circumstances are not my center, so I can move forward with faith. 
Nothing can touch my main thing. Nothing can touch my main thing. And you have to do the same thing, like I said. Remember, the, the best time's leaveable. So when, you're in, when you get a promotion, when you're, being, when you're successful, when you're healthy, when the church you're leading is thriving and growing, as ours is, and the Seahawks are winning, and the weather's amazing. That was just virtual reality, just in case you weren't paying attention. What does a Christian do? says to your heart, settle down. It's nice. This is all good. Life's so good, as the like, T-shirts and the hats say. But it could be gone tomorrow. You know, let's not get too elated here, Jack. I mean, this is awesome. I love, I love what's going on in my life, but I'm not going to get puffed up or lifted up by that because that's not my main thing. There's a tremendous, this idea of moderation, radical evenness of temper about followers of Christ that needs to root your heart. So somebody might be saying in the room, great. But how do I um, do that? Like, how do I use the grace of God on my heart? And that's a good question, so I'm glad you asked it. So if you look at verse 3, Paul says, rejoice, right? But look above it. He says this to the Christians in Philippi, your names are written in heaven. They're in the book of life. It's fascinating to me that Paul says this because Jesus says the same exact thing. If you looked over at Luke chapter 10, one of my favorite passages in in the Gospels, but this is a paraphrase, Jesus' disciples have just come back from a, a mission he sent them on, 72 or 70 of them. And he says, hey, how'd it go? Like, I sent you out in pairs to all these towns to heal, to preach, all this good stuff. And they're like, man, Jesus, we did it. It's awesome. We heal people. People pray to receive Christ. And like, we even cast out demons. Wow. And then Jesus, you know, there's not high fives and fist bumps after this episode. Jesus doesn't sit them down. He, said, he, he literally says, listen, do not rejoice. Opposite of Paul. Do not rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, verse 20. So here's how the message puts that. I love this translation of it. The great triumph is not in your authority over evil, but in God's authority over you and his presence in you. Not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing. And if you are rejoicing what God's done for you, stop now. Do not rejoice in your career. Do not rejoice in your status, on how many likes and followers you have. And don't get so down when you don't. Paul's saying rejoice what God's done for you and who you are in Christ, okay? That's what it means to have a radical evenness of temper. I'm glad, Jesus, I'm glad you got rid of the demons. That's awesome. Good job. <laughs> But you might, not find, you might find a demon tomorrow you can't cast out. In fact, read the Gospel of Luke. It happens. They're unable to cast out a demon, and they're destroyed by it. Jesus is saying, you have to decenter what you're able to do, your circumstance, your ability, your position. Or if life's going great, all the things that are great about your life, that's relative and being relativized by the main thing. And the main thing, here's the main thing. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we're called to rejoice that we're known, by Christ. That's what it means to have your name written in heaven, that you're known by Christ, that he knows your name. Christ, Jesus Christ, creator of heaven and earth, knows you each intimately, and you're loved by him. He knows your story. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. He knows the anxiety that's just ripping your heart apart, and he loves you anyway. In fact, he loves you in that. Uh, We're beloved sons and daughters, as I often say from the stage here, and we will learn to when we learn to pull that truth into our hearts every day, and when we, when we let that shape our experiences, the good and the bad, 
our anxieties, this is the peace of God surrounding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I'm beloved. God delights in me. This experience cannot shake me from that foundation. You understand? That's the discipline of moderation, okay? Decentering everything else but Christ in your heart, okay? And centering on the grace of God. So here's the second discipline, and this is in verse 6. Let me read verse 6. This is that famous uh, verse that most of us have memorized, or some of us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, okay? So here, I'll give you this one too, fill in the blank. Discipline of relinquishment. And like, just like the moderation one, you're like, didn't say relinquishment, Jack. Where's that? (laughs) Um, I was just looking for something different. So what's going on here? It says I should pray, right? And a lot of you say this to me every week. I am praying. I'm being told by you to pray. I'm praying without ceasing. And it's not working. I'm still anxious. (laughs) Thanks, but no thanks, Jack. Like, I I hear this all the time as a pastor. Oh, yeah. I'm filled with worry, I'm anxious, I have stress. Don't worry, just pray. I hear it all the time from guys like you, Jack. You don't know my story. You don't know what I'm facing. <laughs> you know, you got it easy. You got the, like the direct line to God, right? You don't know what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. I don't know what you guys are going through. Um, but notice here, Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, just pray about it, like it's some Nike ad. He doesn't say that. He doesn't it's not just pray. Listen to what he said. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Those conjunctions are huge with, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, okay? There's all kinds of prayer, uh, and they're all good, and, but prayer is not about volume, like being loud to God, and it's also not about quantity, just talking a lot, okay? There's, there's a way to pray that Paul is saying lead, that leads to stability, okay? And he gives us this, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So you're worried about things. You're concerned. I want to unpack these. So, so the Bible's saying express your concerns to God by prayer and petition. That's what petition is. To, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask, see, and knock. And those are all imperatives. Jesus is petitioning all the time. Lord, I take this cup from my hand. He's petitioning God. He's on his face before God. We're told that he's even crying tears of blood, like he's that upset. So we're invited freely, unselfconsciously, and audaciously to come to God saying, God, I, I, I need you to show up, okay? But here's the thing. Paul layers this invitation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So here's, here's the key. Ask, see, knock, but make your petitions with thanks. Like thank, ask with gratitude, Right? Like your kids. Hey, can you please pass, pass the ketchup? Thank you. <laughs> Before it's passed. Hey, can I go over to Brooks's house? Thank you. Ask before you get the answer, because it might be no. <laughs> Brooks is our neighbor, by the way. So begin by, by praising God, in other words, for the fact that in the situation, whatever it is, whatever situation you're presenting God, God's still God, okay? So I can hear someone saying, but wait, how can I be thankful to God before I know how God's going to answer the prayer. Like, what if God doesn't answer? Like, I'm going to, I ask, and then there's no healing. What if the cancer isn't cured? Um, what if the relationship is never reconciled? What if I never experience intimacy, inside or outside of marriage? What if I'm never freed from that addiction? As many of us have never been freed from the addiction. 
What if the anxiety persists my whole life? And the only answer for me is antidepressants. What if the only answer is that? How can I be thankful for that, God? What if the trouble in my life just gets worse and worse? What if? And that's the answer, friends. <laughs> You've arrived. You actually arrived at the point that I'm trying to make here. The point is, we, we're called to petition God and thank him ahead of time for the entire range of possible answers that God might offer. Did you hear me? We're, we're invited to thank God ahead of time for the entire range of possible answers that God might answer, uh, to offer to any possible request. So there's no answer for stress, uncertainty, or anxiety in your life unless you begin to do this. Like you have to envision all the possible things that, God, that could happen which are ultimately this vast array of possible answers that God could reveal and, and offer to us. Ponder those things and then thank God ahead of time for any one of those. This is what Romans 8 says. Paul says this earlier than Philippians, but I think it goes together. He says that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. All things. Envision that any possible outcome here, God could cause, and that it's intended to be for our good. Which means that God does not design the world, did not design the world, to be in the mess that it's in today. He didn't design your life to be in the mess it is in today. There, sin and suffering are reality in our world. We are all living in this world with the consequences of sin and suffering, fallenness, brokenness in relationship, our bodies falling apart. And the key is that God is not withdrawn from the world as some distant cosmic killjoy. He is not withdrawn from your life. He is still sovereign in this world, and he's sovereign over your life. And so he's saying, all things work together for good. I will cause this, whatever it is, those nasty things in your life, as well as in our hearts, the darkness in our hearts. I will cause those to work out for good. And why? Because God is still God. And if you know much about God's character, God is good. <laughs> All things good, God is good. God cannot do something contrary to God's character. He will not. So in the midst of whatever you're facing, God doesn't cease to be God. That's the beginning of the journey of faith. That's what it means to pray. That's the beginning of relationship with the Father. It's an acknowledgement that in the midst of turmoil, chaos, whatever, anxious, anxiety, and personal anxious moments, God's not, God's still God which is where this becomes the practice of relinquishment. So relinquishment begins with acknowledging that much of our life lies beyond our control. Much of it. Mo most of it. I think we begin out of our control. We end out of our control. And though we are under the illusion right now, most of us, that we're fully in control, listen to this. And this, this truth hit me hard a couple years ago when I hit 40. I read on Google that midlife begins at 43 for men. So I'm, I'm hitting it. 44 for women, so you have a little extra time. Google also says that midlife lasts for men about 3 to 10 years, 2 to 5 for men, women. So, like, I'm in my midlife crisis. There you go. You got a pastor in this crisis. So watch out. Which simply means this, that many of us, if you're in that zone or approaching it, woke up one morning, and, or you'll soon do this, and you say, you're never going to make a million bucks. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. Well, good luck. Uh, your marriage is never going to meet your wildest expectations. You have this dream of marriage, it's here. Your children don't need you anymore. I woke up with that realization the other day. Might have been last night. 
we, we begin to see that not all of our ambitions are reachable, that our talents are finite, that our happiness, the happiness is not an endless supply. You can write millions of books about it. It's not an endless supply. Those moments, if you allow them to, will jar you awake. And then you can either spin out into a five to ten year long crisis, or you can respond with the calling you've been given to rejoice that all things work out for the good of those who love God. If you love God, God will cause all things to work out for good. Thanks be to God. God, this isn't what, the way it should be. Petition. I'm desperate, God. I'm lost. I'm, I'm uncertain about the future. I'm out, as they say in the skiing slips, over my skis. Like, I'm on a black diamond. I probably should be on a blue. And yet, God, I believe you're still God. I believe that because you're God, you're good. I believe that in your goodness, goodness, this is the song that we often sing, there's goodness in the land of the living, that the goodness is available for my life. I believe in your grace. I believe you love me. And because I believe those things and I know those things are true about you, I choose to live with belief, not lack of belief. I know you're with me. I know you're for me. I know you have a future for me. So would you just reveal that more and more to me? Reveal that to me, God. And, and then show me how I could join you in that and with, with greater confidence. It might not be easy. Like confidence is not an easy thing to, to walk in. God may not be saying, hey, I'm just going to make it all easier for you. But I'm with you. I'm for you. I, I have enough grace for the day. And then probably some more. And you know what happens when you begin to pray this way? With uh, petitions and thanksgiving? When that's our mindset? Verse 7, peace of God which transcends, you cannot comprehend this, friends. Don't try. This is not an equation. If I just do a little more thanksgiving here with my petition, I'll get the peace. It's not an equation. It transcends understanding. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. So the question is, are you praying that way? Like, as one person I know who says, with, with open hands, grateful hearts, with an attitude of thanks, prior to knowing what's going to happen, I don't know the outcome, God. Thank you. Are you re-seeing your experiences through the character of God, which is his love, wise love, free grace, good, good, goodness? And that's who God is. So that's the second discipline, relinquishment, okay? Are you with me? It's not easy <laughs> cultivating peace, but I'm just offering you what I see, okay? Here's the third thing, last one, and we'll come to the Lord's table. And this is in verses 8 and 9, and <clears throat> this is really good. Uh, and I kind of stumble on this late in the week. So here we go. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard or seen, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Okay? So there's a lot there. I could do a whole sermon on those, those two verses, but I won't because I know we don't have all morning. But here's what Paul's talking about, another, a third discipline. He's presenting us the discipline of, of kind of how we discipline our minds, okay? So I talked about how we discipline our hearts a little bit, like letting Christ be the center, how we discipline our, our prayers, which are our intentions. Here's our minds, okay? And here's the discipline. It's, it's called, the, I'm calling it the discipline of truthful self-talk, okay? Which is related to the discipline of relinquishment, but a little different because it involves a conversation every one of us is having every day with ourselves, okay? Relinquishment's about your conversation with God. 
And you've got to differentiate between the two. Um, but here's what I mean by that. Paul Tripp, he's a Christian author I really enjoy reading. He says that no one on planet Earth is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. It's true, right? You're all laughing, but you know it's true. Nobody's more influential in your life than you are. You're the most influential individual in your life because you're the main voice in your life. Uh, and we could talk about whether that's good or not. It depends on how you're talking, and that's why I want to offer this to you. You're, we are constantly <laughs> in this ongoing, incredibly complicated, yet significant conversation with our own souls. All of us are. We're constantly interpreting and analyzing and listening to our past, thinking about our future, uh, dwelling on the present a little bit, kind of going, what's going to happen in this moment if I talk to that person? You're telling yourself lies or you're declaring truth, okay? Now think about this. Every day, as you process your experiences, we experience big and small things. You drive your car. You drive your car here. You, open, you go to work. You open your mail. Pay the bills. Work with your kids. Try and, like, influence them. Talk on the phone. Um, everything you do is, is through this very strange and yet very real inner dialogue, okay? Here's how it goes. Let's take a piece of mail. You open it up. It's from whatever your health company is, okay? And it's a bill. And it's a big bill, right? Do you tell yourself, I am never going to be able to pay for that? You know, healthcare covered this percentage. You're whatever payee, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I thought I had good health care, right? Are you going to say it? I'm never going to be able to afford this. This is going to sink me into debt. This is going to, this is going to, I can't go on vacation. I'm going to have to take out a second mortgage or whatever, you know? Or do you say, tell yourself, I have a father who knows me, loves me as that prayer stuff, knows my needs, and who bountifully provides. I, I have, I, that's what I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell myself that. Or when someone says something to you that makes you feel insignificant, kind of belittles you, just cuts you down a little bit. Um, do you know the word sarcasm? Do you know what that literally means? To tear flesh. When somebody, we have a sarcastic culture in Seattle. We love to be sarcastic. When somebody's sarcastic towards you, do you go to a place of anger, bitterness, insecurity, kind of self-hatred? I mean, I'm just going to be really honest. This has been a very painful part of my personal journey the dark waters of self-loathing. Um, some of that because of, I came from Spokane, not that we're nice over there, but a little nicer. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding. So, but do you swim in those dark waters or are you, as I'm learning to do, like declare to your heart who you really are in light of the gospel. I'm beloved, God's beloved son. You're God's beloved daughter. God delights, his, I'm his desire. That's who I am. Do you talk to yourself like that? When you experience a loss or a tragedy, um, you know, a sense of despair, there's turmoil, you read the news. Do you go to a place of cynicism? Like, who, like I said earlier, who cares? What's the point anymore? I should just watch that next show everybody's talking about in the foyer, you know, on Netflix or whatever. Just do that. I, why should I care anymore? Or do you go deeper into faith? Like, God, I believe you're good. You're going to work this out, that Romans 8, 28 stuff. See, no one is more influential in your life because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. And you're all talking to yourselves. It's cool. Which is why Paul, Paul says, think about such things. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is praiseworthy. Paul, he's, in, he's inviting us to the, the discipline of truthful self-talk. Here's a great example of this in, in the Psalms. Psalm 42, David is praying, and he's doing a survey of all of his enemies. He's kind of hated by everybody. He's under immense pressure and stress as the king. He's failed in his life miserably. You know his story a little bit, maybe. And he says this in Psalm 42, 11, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Who's David talking to? He's talking to himself. Why, my soul, are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. He's preaching to his heart. He's practicing truthful self-talk. He's saying, God, heart, soul, believe the truth of who you are and whose you are. These people, they hate you. That's not who you are. You've screwed up. You're not a screw-up. You are God's beloved son. Which will be for you? You can either talk to your heart or you can listen to your heart. Which is it for you? Uh, You can listen to all the lies you've been fed. All of us have been fed lies our whole lives. You're never going to make it. You're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to be anybody. Or you can declare the truth to your heart, which comes from the outside and works its way in. God's revealed that truth to us in Jesus Christ. We come to the table today because of that truth. Which will it be for you today? Talk to your heart or listen to your heart? I pray we talk to our hearts. That's the, that's the discipline of truthful self-talk, okay? And if you, when you put that in next to this idea of relinquishment, moderation, I mean, God says, the peace, my peace will surround your whole life, not just your heart, but your mind, your whole being. One last thing, okay? Because those are all good. But I, I just want to, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, listen to this. Uh, back in verse 7, Paul says, if you do these things, you practice relinquishment, those are my words. Moderation, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then you skip down to verse 9, which I just talked about. If you do these other things, think on God's beauty, think on his goodness, think on his truth, all this truthful self-talk stuff. Listen to this. The God of peace will keep you. And that's not an accident. Uh, in other words, it's one thing to seek the peace of God, and that's what Inside and outside the church, everybody's after. But you must not stop there. We would fall short if we stopped with the peace of God. You have to go all the way down. Verse 9, seek the God of peace. The God of peace will keep you. It's who God is. It's not the peace of God we're ultimately after. Peace is an experience. You can get at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. God is a person. You can only receive when you come into fellowship with others the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and commune and receive God. It's the God of peace we're called to seek and pursue. And he has offered himself to us. So that's why we're at the table this morning. Um, Remember what Jesus says to his disciples, last moment in the gospel. He's dead. He's risen. They don't know it. So they've returned to the last place they experienced fellowship with him, the upper room. And it says... Uh, they are locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. They think they're next. And then it says Jesus came, appeared in their midst. He came through the door somehow, which are kind of emblematic of their anxiety, their fear, their turmoil. All the things that are invading their hearts and their minds, invading their peace, breaks through the door of their anxiety. What's the first thing Jesus says? Peace. 
And he's actually just presenting himself to them. Then he breathes on them, which is amazing. <laughs> Peace, my friends. I just give you, I give you myself. You breathe. I breathe, ruach, I give you my spirit. Take it, peace. It's free. That's what's presented to us this morning at the table. It's this broken image of Christ's body and blood, but we get to ingest it. It infuses our, literally our bloodstream, and it surpasses all understanding. Like friends out there, what are you doing? This is weird. And yet you come to it, and you say, God, would your peace, which you've made available to me, this February 4th, 2018, would you allow it to, would you cause it to surround my life? I need it. Do you need it? I know I do. So let me pray, invite our worship leaders forward, and then we'll ask God to make himself known as peace this morning as we worship him. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this great promise that in a world of chaos, um, in a world of um, turmoil where all of us are in like turbulence right now. We, we like this aircraft that's bouncing around in the skies that you've offered yourself to us in this broken image, body and blood, uh, as a great stabilizer, God. You're the great stabilizing force in our lives, in our world. Thanks that we get to come to this in a, in a strange but beautiful way that transcends our understanding, but we just, so we come in faith, God, receiving what you've offered, bread, juice, we commune, we do it in fellowship with others, and just ask your spirit to work in our lives, to be the peace of God to us personally and collectively. And as I said, God, we thank you in advance of you doing it, because we know you're God, we know you're good, we know you're full of grace. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.